A new year brings a new beginning. For all my listeners that own a business, I want to tell you about FedEx Office. If you are just starting or have been running your company for generations, FedEx Office gives you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, and so much more. With FedEx, creating, editing, saving, and ordering are fast and easy. We are teaming up with FedEx and Podgo to bring our listeners 30% off your next order of $100 or more at podgo.co slash FedEx. That's podgo.co slash FedEx for 30% off your next order. FedEx, the world on time. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. I am your host as always, sports editor of the Hickory Daily Record in North Carolina, Josh McKinney, and I teased it last week, and I'm very excited to bring you what I believe is the biggest episode in the history of our show. Now, before I talk about that and our guest for Call to the Bullpen, I want to point out that it is Black History Month here in February, and so each week I will begin that specific episode by talking about a famous African-American athlete. Today we're going to start off with Jackie Robinson, who's probably the most famous one ever. And then after that today, I'm going to have fearless forecast as I give my Super Bowl prediction between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for this Sunday's game. And then the segment I'm most excited about, an interview I recently had with Paul Bird, a former Major League Baseball pitcher for several teams, including my Atlanta Braves, now a broadcaster slash analyst for the Braves on Fox Sports. I had an awesome near 45-minute conversation with Paul. You'll hear that very shortly here in Call of the Bullpen. And then my wife, Christine, joins me for Happily Ever Drafter to wrap the show up as we draft the ultimate meals. But coming up, we talk about Jackie Robinson for Black History Month, Fearless Forecast, my conversation with Paul Bird, and then that Happily Ever Drafter coming up on Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. It's going to be a good one. Okay, we start off the show, like I said, First week of Black History Month, I'm going to talk about Jackie Robinson. Where to start? Well, the man was born on January 31st, 1919 in Cairo, Georgia. He was the youngest of five children born to a family of sharecroppers. Grew up poor and didn't play organized sports, actually, until high school. So he enrolled at John Muir High School in Pasadena, California in 1935 and ended up earning varsity letters in four different sports, including baseball, basketball, football, and track. He went on to continue to play those sports at Pasadena Junior College for two years and then became the first UCLA Bruin to earn varsity letters in four sports, and that included an NCAA long jump championship in 1940. Now, Jackie made a humongous impact on not only the game of baseball, but the entire world. And, you know, he's credited with being the man who broke Major League Baseball's color barrier 
Uh, actually, I think, as far as I could tell, the first African-American man to appear in an MLB game was actually Moses Fleetwood Walker in the 1880s. But as far as I could find in doing my research about Jackie, he was the first person since Walker in the 1880s to play in an MLB game. Uh, he made his debut on April 15th, 1947. And now, obviously, MLB every year, all of its players, every April 15th, they honor Jackie. Every player in the major leagues wears number 42, which is a number that has been retired by baseball now. But they bring it back every year on April 15th. Jackie played for the Brooklyn Dodgers for his entire 10-year big league career. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1962. He was the MLB Rookie of the Year in 1947. Also the National League MVP two years later. A two-time National League stolen base leader and a six-time All-Star. And Jackie played in six World Series with the Dodgers. Uh, including the 1955 Fall Classic, where they won it all, uh, won the championship. He batted 311 in his MLB career with 1,518 hits, including 273 doubles, 54 triples, and 137 home runs. And Jackie also had, and this is amazing when you think about the game today versus then, Jackie had 740 walks against just 291 strikeouts. That's crazy. That's crazy. He stole 197 bases, scored 947 runs. Now, prior to his time in the major leagues, Jackie was actually a member of the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues in 1945, where he was discovered by Dodgers executive Branch Rickey. That's a great story. You can learn more about it online. There have been books written about it. It's a story that I did a book report on when I was in school. Learned about it at a very young age. And just a great story where Robinson came in and obviously faced a lot of racism. There have been a lot of movies done about it, as I alluded to. 42 in 2013 by the late, great Chadwick Boseman is a phenomenal movie where he played Jackie. But anyway... Branch brought Jackie in and was able to sign him to a contract. He played for the Montreal Royals, uh, who were a minor league affiliate of the Dodgers at the time in 1946, and then joined Brooklyn's big league club the following year. But before all that, uh, Jackie also was drafted in the U.S. Army in 1942 during World War II. He never saw combat and was actually almost court-martialed in 1944 after he refused a Texas bus driver's order to sit in the back because of his color. Uh, he was later acquitted of all charges, thankfully, and that led into him also being a college basketball coach. So Jackie did a lot even prior to his major league career, during his major league career, after his major league career, there's so much more you could say about him. I just wanted to say a little bit about the great impact Jackie Robinson made, an impact that is still felt to this very day when you see the amount of African-American baseball players and the amount of guys from other countries now who have infiltrated into baseball. And it's such a great game, such a great sport, and Jackie Robinson is one of the most legendary figures in the history of not only baseball but all of sports. And outside of sports. He was a civil rights activist, and one of his famous quotes was, there's not an American in this country free until every one of us is free. 
Really important words to keep in mind, uh, particularly in the time we're in right now. But thank you, Jackie. Black History Month, as I said, we're going to be doing this each week. Uh, That's a little bit about Jackie Robinson, folks. Look into him more if you're not as familiar with a lot of things that I've said. I didn't know that he was a college coach. And some of these other things had slipped my mind, but it's amazing what he was able to accomplish, not only in Major League Baseball, but outside of it. So thank you, Jackie. That's all I've got to say. Now, let's get to Fearless Forecast. The big game is this Sunday, folks. That's right. Super Bowl 55 coming up. And just so you know, heading into the big game, overall this season, counting the regular season and the playoffs, I am 181 and 86 with my predictions. So a great season for me. You always want to call the Super Bowl correctly, I guess. This year, I've got to be honest, I'm not really going to be pulling for one team over the other. Don't really have a preference in this year's game. Just going to sit back and enjoy some football, hopefully some good commercials and time with friends and family, uh, watching the big game, enjoying some great food. That's the plan this year. But I do have to make a prediction for sure, since I'm doing Fearless Forecast. I went 1-1 in the conference championship games. Picked the Green Bay Packers over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It was a very difficult decision. The Bucs ended up winning behind Tom Brady and will now host a Super Bowl. For the first time in the history of the NFL, uh, a team is doing that there at Tampa Bay. Obviously a limited crowd due to COVID-19 restrictions, but still an awesome accomplishment for the Bucs. It's difficult for me to cheer for a team in the NFC South, given that I'm a Carolina Panthers fan, so I can't cheer for them. At the same time, I really don't want to see Kansas City win again as much as I enjoyed watching them last year. And I'm a big fan of both quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes for KC, Tom Brady for Tampa Bay. It's amazing that he is now playing in his 10th Super Bowl has a chance to win a seventh championship. Just crazy. And obviously he did the rest with New England. Went to Tampa Bay this year. It's amazing what he's been able to accomplish. He's certainly surrounded by a great group of receivers and tight ends. Rob Gronkowski joined him as well. Uh, Bruce Arians going to his first Super Bowl as a coach. Uh, Andy Reid won his first Super Bowl. He had been to one with Philadelphia that I remember before that. He seems like a really great human being and uh, a solid coach who was underrated for many years and got that Super Bowl title last year. This year's tough. I've gone back and forth. As I said last week, I would be making this prediction this week. And I've got to be honest, I'm still not sure of myself and my pick. But because I picked against Tom Brady in the NFC Championship game, I don't want to make the same mistake twice. And like I've said, It is difficult to bet against either Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady, but there's more to go off of for Tom Brady. He's been here time and time again, and during the regular season, these teams met. The Bucs got down pretty big, scored 14 points in the fourth quarter, and still ended up losing by three points, but made it close. Both teams scored in the 20s that game. I think if they score in the 20s again in this game, the Bucs win. If it gets to 30 and above, Kansas City's going to win this game. That is their game, is the shootout. And Tom Brady's capable of playing that as well. But I don't think anybody plays a shootout as well as KC in today's NFL. That said, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice, like I said. I am going with Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to win this game. 
I think the fact that KC has a couple of offensive linemen out for this game will hurt them. They'll be starting Mike Rimmers in one of those spots, and I've got some terrible memories of Mike Rimmers in a Super Bowl when he was with the Panthers. Really one of the major reasons the Panthers lost the Super Bowl in 2016 after their 15-1 regular season. Could not stop Von Miller and that Denver Broncos defense. Not saying that it was all his fault. He had a great regular season with the Panthers that year, did some great things on the line. And I'm not saying that solely that's the reason the Bucks are going to win. I just think they're going to find a way. And uh, they have no better quarterback on the field than Tom Brady in a Super Bowl. No one's got the kind of experience he does. And I know he can't do anything to stop Patrick Mahomes. But this Bucks defense has shown that it could get pressure on an opposing quarterback. It did against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers a week and a half ago. And could very well do the same thing with a couple of offensive linemen out for the Chiefs, like I said. Tampa Bay is going to have to turn the Chiefs over a couple times. They've been doing a great job of that in the playoffs. I mean, Aaron Rodgers rarely ever turns the ball over and did a couple times against the Bucks. But it's going to be a fun game. It's going to be close. It's going to be a great matchup. Uh, some have been calling it maybe like a LeBron James versus Michael Jordan type scenario for the NFL with Mahomes and Brady going at it. It's going to be a fun matchup to watch. And I know both of them have great respect for one another. Brady's talked highly of Patrick. And obviously Patrick looks up to Tom, who many consider the greatest quarterback of all time. I would be in that camp as well. Even though I think it is hard to compare errors, I haven't seen a better quarterback than Tom Brady myself. So at 43 years old, he could become the oldest quarterback to win a Super Bowl, and that would be really cool to watch. It would also be cool to see Patrick Mahomes lead the Chiefs to back-to-back Super Bowls. And like I said, I was pulling for the Bills. Would have rather seen the Packers, but that's not what we got. I don't hate either of these teams. I should not like the Buccaneers, and they're not my favorite team, but because of the respect I have for Tom Brady, I've grown to like them a little better this year. And we've got a local connection, Ryan Suckup. The kicker for Tampa Bay is going to be playing in his first Super Bowl. He's been kicking for over a decade in the NFL. He was with the Chiefs and the Titans previously, now going up against his former team in the Super Bowl. And he's a Hickory guy, graduated from Hickory High School. I work at the Hickory Daily Record, uh, which is a newspaper in Hickory, North Carolina. So excited for him. And it would be cool for him to bring a Super Bowl championship back to Hickory. So I guess that's one reason to kind of want the Bucks to win. Also, just wanting to be right with your prediction, even though it's not going to hurt me either way that much, just because I've had a great season picking games. The Super Bowl is always tough. It comes down to two teams. I mean, it's hard to say. But I expect a great game. I am going to go with the Bucks. But like I said, if it gets into the 30s, I think the Chiefs take it. The lower score it remains, the more it favors the Bucks. They need to try to ball control a little bit. Keep the ball out of the hands of Patrick Mahomes and that Chiefs offense and all the weapons he's got. Both teams have no shortage of weapons on offense, so it should be fun to watch. Both defenses can give up a lot, but both defenses are also capable of playing well. It just depends on which one shows up more, and I think it's going to be fun. That's the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 55 Sunday. I've got the Bucks, but it's going to be a great game above all else, in my opinion. That's all I got for Fearless Forecast. Now it's time for the biggest interview I've had yet on Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. I've got Paul Bird, former Major League Baseball pitcher, 
now a broadcaster slash analyst for the Atlanta Braves on Fox Sports. He's also an Emmy-winning broadcaster. And so I'm very delighted for you to hear my conversation with Paul Bird. Let's head in to Call to the Bullpen. Well, I want to thank a very special guest uh, for joining me on uh, Four Quarters with Josh McKinney uh, for this week. Paul Bird, uh, former Major League Baseball pitcher, current uh, broadcaster and analyst for uh, the Braves on Fox Sports. Very excited to talk to you, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I just want to go back. First of all, we'll talk about your early days in baseball, uh, what age you got interested in the sport, and just uh, that kind of stuff. Well, i tell you what. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and we were horses, whiskey, and basketball. And uh, I grew up breaking lamps with a tennis ball. And my dad, Larry Bird, who I called the real Larry Bird, he was a police officer. He was a basketball player, so he knew nothing about baseball. So he got a book called The Art of Pitching. And he tied his handkerchief down in the living room, and I would imitate the windup from Cincinnati Reds that I watched on TV way back when we only had four channels, and I would try to throw strikes. And so that's how I kind of got my love and my start. And, you know, I played football, played basketball, but baseball was by far my favorite. And, uh, you know, I'm real thankful that my dad spent that kind of time with me. Yeah, absolutely. I played baseball when I was younger. It's kind of the first sport I played team-wise. I've stuck with basketball more because it's just my better sport. But I always enjoyed baseball and enjoy watching it. And uh, I got to actually broadcast a little bit for a college team. They were kind of a summer league for guys that were in college to come play locally. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, nice, man. Yeah, broadcasting baseball. I mean, watching it, talking about it, just sitting there having a hot dog with your buddy or if you take your grandson or your son to the game, it's just such a cool sport. And I think in 2020, that's one of the things that I learned was how social the sport is. You know, when Freddie Freeman hits a home run or Ronald Acuna and you just hear it clank in the stands and you don't hear the roar of the crowd or the people, it's just, it lacks so much for me. So uh, baseball in 2021 includes fans. And a lot of them. Yeah, I do too. It was very weird at first watching on TV, no fans, and uh, got used to it a little bit more, but uh, really hope to see them back. And I haven't been to the new ballpark yet, so I'm really looking forward to uh, coming out there at some point soon. Oh, yeah, man. The new park is done right. It's incredible. You know, not just the park, but the area outside. And that was the weird thing in 2020 is you would hear the roar of the crowd from the battery, but it was five seconds later after they saw it on TV instead of real time being right there. So uh, you got to make it out. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk about your book, uh, which I read several years ago, Free Bird, The Power of a Liberated Life. Uh, For someone who hasn't read it, just kind of describe what the book's about. Yeah. So for me, I appreciate you reading that, by the way. It's just a journey of my faith in professional sports. And um, it's got some some stories in there that have been really important and life lessons that I've learned uh, while playing. And it's just a little bit about my journey. I think uh, we gravitate to story and just hearing about someone's life and kind of learning from each other. And so that's kind of my memoir. It started out when I went and did a living a will. And somebody said, do you have a living will? And I said, what's a living will? And the attorney said, that's where you write about yourself. So if you pass away 
your kids will have something that you pass along to them that they know about. And I said, well, they'll remember me. And he just said, well, how much do you remember before you were seven years old? And I thought, man, that's so I started working on stories and life lessons that I learned from my kids. And then uh, a friend of mine who is a writer found out about that and he asked to see it. And he said, this needs to be a book. And so that's how it turned out. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed it. I know John Smoltz did the foreword. I read his book as well, a great Christian man as well. And he's always been one of my favorite players. I want to talk about your time at uh, LSU. You won a College World Series there in 1991. So talk about your college experience there at, at LSU. Yeah, so I went uh, to Arizona State and other schools on a visit, and I was going to Arizona State, and Skip Bertman at LSU was such a good motivational speaker. And when I went on a recruiting trip, he was a great recruiter. And everybody else said, hey, we're going to win. We hope you come here. But we're going to win, you know, regardless. And Coach Bertman said something different. And he said, we can't win without you. We need you. We want you here. And everybody wants to be wanted. And so that made a really big impression on me. And the next thing you know, you know, I ended up committing that weekend to LSU and ended up going there. And that's where I found my faith at LSU through a chaplain named Wayne Waddell. Um, and he shared something different with me and he had talked about personal relationship. And the next thing you know, I found myself asking to go out to lunch with him um, because I was attracted to that. I was attracted to something that I'd never seen before, uh, which was, uh, you know, um, that, that genuine personal relationship that he talked about. And so I, uh, I started meeting with him and um, those were some sweet years and we won the national championship at LSU and I returned to work with the guy that led me to Christ, Wayne Waddell. And that's when I met my wife, Kim. And uh, we've been married as of a couple weeks ago, 27 years. So I can't believe how fast it goes by, but uh, it's been quite a journey. Well, uh, happy anniversary to you. Thank you. We'll talk about, I know you and your wife have uh, gone around and kind of done some motivational speaking and things. and Talk about where people can find out more about that and kind of the things you do. Yeah, so we um we were blessed. I ended up speaking for Crew, which is an organization that works with college students. And uh, when I played for the Red Sox in 08 and 09, uh, after you play for the Red Sox, you can do anything you want. So they were um trying to use me to speak to schools up in the Northeast uh, because I played for the Red Sox. So I ended up getting to know some of the students and getting to know, getting to have some relationships with some of them. And it's it ended up being really, really neat. But you know, the important thing that we talk about is that you don't have to have it all together. And, uh, you know, when I grew up, one of the things with my father was he was really difficult at times. You know, he was chief detective of a homicide. And I'd kind of transferred the way he was with how I felt God felt about me. So I felt that, you know, God was going to come down on me hard, you know, anytime that, that I made a mistake. And so like, just like a pitcher, I started performing for God, thinking that if I sinned less, he would like me more. And it was kind of uh, like a sin management program. And so I had to relearn a lot of those things that the boss says about fatherhood and that you're not accepted on your performance at all, that it's what Christ did on the cross. And by receiving that, you're okay. And that he doesn't just love you in a cosmic sense, but he likes you. He really enjoys you and he gave his son for you and that you're a work in progress. And he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. 
And I think college is really some tough years where we're starting to form ideas and we're starting to try and figure things out. And um, it's nice that uh, God has enabled me or blessed us to be able to go in and talk about marriage and talk about Jesus and talk about God loving you and what he's done for you. Yeah, you've got a website. What's the what's that uh, address again? Yeah, so the birdhouseministries.com, so the birdhouseministries.ies.com and then we now run an equine therapy center uh next door where we teach uh just relationship with horses and try to help people through that through counseling programs and then working on connection with horses so that uh you can carry things like that into your life and this is really crazy, Josh, but if you get within five feet of a horse, your heart rate lowers and um, you're able to process things with animals that you aren't necessarily able to do in an office with four walls. So we can work with first responders and others and people that it's like a therapy dog, only bigger. And so we've uh, we've been blessed enough to do that and really, really love it. That's really cool. I, uh, I've actually always been afraid to get on a horse because uh, I have a funny story back in church. Uh, vacation bible school uh <laughs> they they brought horses out for us to ride and uh, one of my friends in front of me got on and ended up falling off the horse and so i was like no i'm not gonna go <laughs> so, so ever since then i kind of been you know not afraid of a horse so to speak but maybe to try to ride one you know m- my wife and i ended up going to uh in uh, tennessee uh dolly parton's uh stampede thing she has and uh we were actually called out. Uh, we were dating at the time and uh, called out of the crowd to come and participate in something. We thought we were going to be riding real horses. They gave us stick horses that we rode around the race oh, no. this other couple, and, <laughs> and we won. We won. So there you go. <laughs> that's there the you good go. thing. But that's the only riding horses I've done. Um, I want to get back to your baseball career. We talked about LSU. Uh, you obviously played for seven different major league teams. Yeah. I want to talk. I know you faced a lot of tough hitters. Talk about some of the hitters that really stand out to you. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. You know what? I got to uh, face Frank Thomas in college. He went to Auburn and I was at LSU. So facing Frank Thomas with an aluminum bat is one of the worst experiences ever. Um, I did strike him out and then he crushed my right fielder, Craig Calla, with a line drive that uh, his hand is still ringing. But he was on another level and super intimidating. And then, Man, the guys that asked about Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, uh, Barry Bonds was unbelievably intimidating when he walked up to the plate. He just had an aura about him where there's a reason he has so many walks. You know, uh, it's, it's tough to throw strikes to. I know one time he fouled the ball off behind third base and Mark DeRosa and I ran over to the line because I thought he was going to catch it in foul territory and the ball went out of the park. It was 14 rows deep and we turned and looked at each other and just started laughing. And it was one of the most intimidating things that ever happened to me because I'm like, man, I thought that was a foul ball behind third base and it was a home run. So he had incredible power. Tony Gwynn was really tough. Tony Gwynn probably had the best hand-eye coordination of anybody they've ever seen. And he never overswung. He just hit a base hit in between shortstop, third base, and that was him. You could not make a pitch on the outside corner without him squaring it up well. And then Ichiro was somebody else that I thought was really unique, like his hitting style of being out on that front foot. And when he hit the ball, he was a step or two out of the box running to first as the ball's going on the ground. 
So there's a reason that he had that many hits in his career and was an absolute incredible hitter. So those are some of the ones that come to mind right off the top of my head. Albert Pujols, probably the toughest for me, because I knew if I threw a ball into, say, Bonds or into McGuire or into Sosa, I knew that I was going to jam them and I was going to get them out or they had a hole. But Albert Pujols was the one guy that I didn't know how to pitch them. So in other words, we'd be sitting there in our players' meetings talking about hitters, and then when they say his name, like no one knows how to get him out. Like nobody knows how has any advice for you. That's when you know you're facing the best hitter in the league. So a lot of great hitters, and I'm fortunate to be able to pitch as long as I did through all those. Yeah, I know. Uh... Your best year uh, individually came with uh, Kansas City, uh, 17 wins uh, in the American League. I know that team lost 100 games, but I know an interesting uh, story about that season, I believe, is when the bird's nest started with the fans. Yeah, uh, yeah. Talk, about, talk about that experience. Oh, man, that was really cool. I had uh, in Philadelphia, I had the bird's nest that carried over uh, into Kansas City, and it was really, really neat. And it just started with some high school kids that, uh, they got some beaks and they put a sign up that said the bird's nest. And then they got shown on TV and then more people started coming. And then I'd send up pizzas and then they'd be sitting there and they increased to feathers and, you know, a cap or pull high socks because I wore my socks up. And uh, so every time I would pitch and I would walk off the field and I didn't mean this in an arrogant way, but I would look up and I would wave my arms, you know, and I called it giving them the bird. And, Say, man, why do you got to, you know, I said, hey, anybody that's going to look like a clown and wear a bird's beak and put on feathers, I'm going to say thank you, you know, when I'm walking off the field. So that was a pretty neat experience for me. And then the owner at the time, David Glass, during my last road trip, he sent the bird's nest on the road to a game I pitched in Detroit. And um, it was really, really cool. So that was uh, something I've always remembered. I'm always thankful for. Yeah. And another story I wasn't actually aware of, I was doing a little research before we started was uh the Frazier nickname you got. Uh yes. Can you talk about you talk about how that came about? Yeah, I was in uh Philadelphia. I had a little bit of a um Frazier look. I had that little sort of mullet behind the ears. And then man, I've always had this huge forehead. You know, I don't have a forehead, I've got an eight head. So uh and then I have this little smirk and whatever and people are like, man, that that's Frazier Crane, you know, so the next thing you know, uh, that was one of my nickname among some others that always stuck. So I've always thought that's really funny. And then also, I know later in your career, you started developing an old school delivery. You went to more of an old yeah. fashioned type thing. Talk about that transition. Yeah. So I'm sitting in my office right here and I have some sand and I keep this in my office and I was uh, with the Royals and I was out of, well, not out of baseball, but I was almost out of baseball. And um, I was throwing about 81, 82 miles an hour. And I was coming back from shoulder surgery and I thought I was going to get released. And before you get traded, released, it's weird. You can kind of sense it. You can just kind of feel it. And I really thought, man, I'm about to get released and my career is about to be over. And so uh, I went over and I climbed a fence and everybody had gone home in spring training, boardwalk and baseball. And I was in street clothes. I was in flip-flops, too. And I just sat down, and I just started praying. And I just said, you know, I don't know where you want me, but if I have anything to say in this, I'd love to keep playing baseball. And so I asked God, just kind of, can you give me something? Can you become my pitching coach? 
you know, and so I just, I sat there and, you know, I never, I'd never heard anything audibly. I never do. And I just got up and started working through different mechanics. So I started swinging my arms and started, uh, you know, like Warren Spawn. And then I started doing the high leg kick like Bob Feller and I fell down and there's people working on other fields and they're looking at me like, who is this fan that's hopped the fence, you know? And, um, so I looked like an idiot. And then I started kind of bending over and just doing different things. And, um, so those, the next day I'm pitching pitchers, you know, batting practice where the hitters come in and you work on things that you need to and you can tell them what's coming or not. So I'm telling them what's coming and I start swinging my arms and everybody starts laughing at me. And then I start kind of bending over, swinging my arms, doing this. And all of a sudden it gets quiet and guys like Carlos Beltran. Mike Sweeney and others are unable to square up my fastball. And I was like, okay, I'm not throwing a lot harder, but I'm throwing a mile an hour or two because I started swinging my arms and I got some momentum. So then I finished and I walked off the field and Carlos Beltran came over to me and he said, Hey, he goes, I don't know if you were just joking around. And he said it in this awesome Latino accent. He goes, but I can't pick up the ball. And I was like, okay, if Carlos Beltran trouble seeing the ball. This is a good thing. And then George Brett walked over to me, George Brett, one of the greatest hitters of all time. And he said, I would have hated facing you. I was like, hated facing me. Like, check your numbers, man. You're George Brett. Like you're a hall of famer. You're unbelievable. And you're left-handed and left-handers kill me. And he said, no, he said, Paul, he goes, I like pitchers that do 95 miles an hour straight and hard because I knew once I launched the ball was going to take off. He goes, you, you cut it, you sink it, you're funky, a little bit of this, and I had trouble picking up the ball. And then I see, you know, I would miss hit it, ground ball. Then I would have gotten angry. He goes, I would have hated facing you. And I walked away thinking, man, like God didn't answer my prayer the way I thought he would have answered my prayer, which is all of a sudden I'm throwing 95 and I got this magic arm. Or he would have said something to me audibly. That didn't happen either. But in a really unusual roundabout way, he answered my prayer with encouragement. And he answered my prayer through enabling me to be creative. And so I keep this sand with me because boardwalk and baseball was destroyed. And years later, I drove back down to that place and I got some sand from the area where I changed my mechanics. And it sits in my office and it's always a reminder to be creative, to think outside the box, to pray, to be dependent on him and to never give up. And I had my best year that year and I didn't throw much harder. But I won, as you say, 17 games. And what my biggest weakness was became my strength because then I was known for being quirky and doing the double pump and doing different kinds of things to throw hitters off. And so it was where I guess I could say that there was a change and I was able to make a name for myself. Yeah, absolutely. Really cool. I know you had two stints with the Atlanta Braves, so I'm a huge fan of and I got to play for Bobby Cox. Can you talk about those experiences? Well, playing for Bobby Cox uh, was like no other. I hate to say, he's like a father figure, you know? He's like just calm and like maybe your grandpa was just the general, nice and easy. But when the game started, oh my gosh, he would lose his mind. And what I mean by that is he was the biggest competitor out of all of us. He hated to lose. And if you missed a pitch, the umpire, or it was a pitch you thought he missed. I mean, he was on that umpire and he was, and you felt like, oh my gosh, this guy has my back. 
you know, and you're like, what happened to my grandpa, by the way? He's not this calm, nice character anymore. He is this ferocious competitor that is just intense. So it was it was really, really a great experience. And I learned a lot from him. He did not like to have meetings. He didn't like to talk to the players with big meetings. He felt like, uh, you know, that it needed to be worked out in the clubhouse. So when he gave you that kind of responsibility, it enabled you to kind of, hey, this is we're a team and let's work it out. Um, he wasn't big on stretching. Okay. Like you'll never hear this, but he just felt that if you did not do your own stretching and your own preparation, he didn't want you on the team. So you needed to get what you needed to get done and um, on your own and care. And I thought, man, so he gave you a lot of responsibility. Then when he did speak, man, everybody listened because it was rare. And it was like, man, this is super important. And so you were just locked in on the general. And um, it was uh, it was quite an experience. He told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I was too nice to pitch in 1997. You know, it's that, hey, this guy's a crazy, you know, it's one of those where you're, I was uh, later termed the nicest guy in baseball. So you don't want that, you know, when you're on the hill because the hitters are digging in like, man, I'm facing the nicest guy in baseball. You know, you don't want that. But years later, he brought me back to Atlanta and said, Paul's one of the most creative guys at getting guys out that I've ever seen. And I want to give him the ball. And it meant the world to me that he had, uh, he's going to tell you the truth is what I'm trying to say. And so it meant so much to me that he was able to say, Here's Paul, who's too nice to pitch, and then I want him on my team because I I love the way he competes. So um, that that meant a lot. Yeah, and Paul, my favorite player ever is Chipper Jones. I grew okay. up watching him talk about uh, playing on the same team with him, and just felt oh, like man. every time he came up, he was going to do something big. Yeah, Chipper Jones was best described by a scout, um, Brian Bridges, for me, and he said, "When the lights are on, Chipper Jones walks up to the plate." Like everybody's there to see him and he's right. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty good. And the way he carried himself, the aura that he had could be termed, you know, arrogant or cocky, but he was very good and he backed it up and I'll call it swagger because he just, uh, you know, that was an intimidation when he walked up the plate and you were pitching against him. It's like, man, Chipper Jones and then crazy train comes on. Uh, what you don't know is that he put in a lot of work with his dad. When he was young, working off the tee, working on hitting tennis balls with PVC pipe, and he spent a lot of time. When he got to the big leagues, he was one of the smartest hitters that I ever faced. So when I pitched against him first time, 1993 in AAA, to when, you know, I pitched him in 2006 or whatever, and we would talk, he could remember me. I was teammates with him, 97, 98, 03, 04. He could remember how I pitched against him in AAA. He could remember what I threw against him. So if he faced somebody, he had this electronic file in his head, like a Rolodex, man. He could just pull it up and recall ways pitchers pitched against him years before. And I found that to be incredible. Another thing is he was the most calm and cool, relaxed guy at the plate. Um, Derek Jeter was the same way. Could be joking one minute, could be up at the plate competing the next. So Chipper could be in the locker room playing solitaire and 10 minutes later be at the plate crushing the pitcher. And I've seen that with my own eyes, where when his knees got bad and certain things in his career later, and he would be playing solitaire and say, Chip, man, you got to be ready. You're up. You're up shortly. You know, I'd be like 15 minutes away starting the game. He'll go, I'll be there. I'll be there. 
bam, 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 walk out to the field, national anthem. Next thing you know, he's up, home run. Um, so it's absolutely incredible. He would sit pitches. He'd look change up. And if he looked change up, he may strike out the first two times. And when you throw him the change up in that third at bat, he launches. So it was one of those things. He was always dangerous and incredible hitter. Yeah. We'll go back to you. Uh, after your career, obviously the transition to broadcasting, was that something that you thought you wanted to do or how'd that come about? Yeah. So I, I retired and, uh, I walked away to spend time with my family and my wife said, what's, what good is money if you miss your kids grow up? And I really started thinking about that and took that to heart. And I walked away because she said, I can't travel with you anymore. She had moved us 56 times while I played over the 19 years with nine different teams. So I walked away and uh, it really was a tough time for me because I quit doing something that I loved doing. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm, um, you know, get a call from the Braves and a girl named Megan Swingle, who remembered me from playing and taking interviews, said, would you come down and do a tryout? So I did. And I came down and did a tryout. And uh, the next thing you know, they picked me. And um, I've learned a lot, you know, over the years. Brian Jordan, Andre Aldridge, Jerome Jorinovich. Because when you're a broadcaster, it's totally different than taking an interview as a player. You have to look at the right camera. When you do an interview, you have to know what questions to say to bring out the most in that player. I don't want to tell Ronald Acuna to act like Nick Marcakis or vice versa. I just want to capture who they are and celebrate who they are. And so I try to get that out with questions when I hold the microphone or do what have you. And I uh, try to keep it fun. Baseball's fun. It's a, such a failure game that if you don't laugh at yourself or you don't whatever, then it's uh, it can wear you out. So I try to bring that into broadcast and tease a little bit. Be serious. No one to teach. No one to let it breathe and listen to the crowd. And I've had a blast doing it. And that's how it started. So what's a typical game day like for you? Yeah. So as a broadcaster, you'll get down there at, uh, you know, three o'clock and it opens up at three thirty. So you'll get down there and you can study in the afternoon what you need to study. I'm a big coffee guy. So, you know, as baseball, we got to be on at 10 at night or 11 at night or 12 at night and be thinking clearly and be at our peak and have our best. So, you know, usually sleep in a little later to be able to do that. And then you head to the coffee shop, you prepare, and then, you know, you'll head down at about three o'clock and get in that clubhouse and start asking the questions and start learning the personalities and start, uh, you know, connecting with the guys. And then um, go to your pregame, the game, depending on if I'm in the booth or on sidelines, uh, you'll prepare differently for those things. And uh, most of the time I'm on sidelines. And so I'll try to bring out things that happen in the game have a few prepared stories that we can go to depending on how the game goes. And if the game is super, super boring, that's when I got to make it fun. And that's when I go run around the stadium and find things that are, you know, the zip line or the certain view from the Home Depot club, or I'll go interview a fan, which can be dangerous for live TV, but also makes for some good interaction and try to, to make the game go by a little faster if it's, if it's starting to slow down. Then post game, and then my favorites are the walk offs because if there's a walk off, I um, get to try to dodge the ice cooler, and um, it gets a little crazy. And uh, I love doing those and getting to interview players, you know, afterwards, and uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, this uh, 2020 season was a lot of fun to watch. The Braves uh, really needed the season they were able to put together with everything that was going on uh, with the pandemic and everything. 
you know, they finally won another playoff series, first time in nearly two decades. Uh, hated the way the season ended, obviously, but really excited about this young team they're building. Uh, your thoughts on this Braves team and what made them so special in 2020? I think that Atlanta went back to the way they were doing things. What I mean by that is they got a little off track for years and they didn't draft pitchers. They did some different things. So now I think they went back and they got the great pitchers, the Sorokas, the Freeds, the Ian Andersons. They started to draft really well and then just grabbing that one veteran. So I think they are set up to win for a long, long time. You look at Ronald Acuna Jr. with the passing of Hank Aaron, and you don't want to ever compare anybody to Hank Aaron. What I mean by that is somebody that's 20 years old in the big leagues who's a superstar right away. That's really, really rare. So Atlanta has one of those, the Ozzy Albies, which is an incredible piece. you got Freeman winning the MVP. So they're going to be good for a very, very long time. Um, it's baseball. doesn't mean you can just buy a team or win it every year because the ball has to bounce in your direction. You have to get that good fortune and certain things happen. But they are going to win, and they are going to be there in the thick of things for 10 years to come. And that's similar to the Braves team in the 90s that you, you know, you never knew what was going to happen, but you knew they were going to be good. So it's going to be a fun team to follow. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, Freddie Freeman win the MVP, very well-deserved. I uh, feel like for many years he's been kind of underrated in some circles, and to see him get that notoriety, uh, such a nice guy, and then also uh, just the way he performs on the field is just so consistent. Talk about Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman, I cannot say enough good things about Freddie Freeman. A lot of times in baseball when somebody becomes really good, it's not easy. And what I mean by that is Chuck Swindoll said years ago, when he's in his 70s, Chuck Swindoll's a counselor pastor out in California. And he said this, I've never forgot this. He said, for the people that sit in my office, and he said that just get crushed and handle failure. He goes, for all of those people, for 10 of those people, he goes, I've only seen one that can handle success. And he said, success is so much harder to handle than failure. I've never forgotten that. And I see that when somebody makes millions and millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and then the next thing you know, they don't work as hard or other distractions come into play. And Freddie Freeman is the same person he is now as when he broke into the big leagues. He can handle success. He's a great father. He's a great husband. He's a great leader in the clubhouse. He works extremely hard. He thinks really well. And when he has uh, the time to mentor younger guys, he does it. Um, when guys don't want to take interviews that are older and that are superstars, he looks at them and says, go take your interview. Um, there's stuff like that that I can talk about Freddie Freeman all day long that I appreciate. So he needs to retire a Brave like Chipper. He's the new face of the Braves. And um, I hope that they, uh, like I said, he finishes his career in Atlanta. I can't say enough good things about Freddie. Yeah, and you talk about Freddie. I also want to talk about uh, two of the young guys, uh, Acuna and Albies. I love watching those two and their uh, interactions together and how much fun they have playing the game. No, absolutely. The energy that those guys bring. And I want to celebrate Freddie Freeman for the way he is, and then I want Ozzy and, and Acuna to be themselves. So if they're clowns, they are half the time. I want to celebrate that and say, man, you guys really make baseball fun. If Cunha wants to bat flip as long as it's out of the park. I want him to bat flip. I want him to be himself. And so I love the energy that these guys bring. It's all genuine. It doesn't matter if it's a 10 to 1 game or a 2 to 1 game. 
They're both very high energy. They're cheering for their teammates. Ronald Acuna can go 0 for 4, and if one of his buddies hits a big home run in the 8th of the ninth inning, he's on the top step, jumping, yelling, fist pumping, and I think that's what makes it so good is it's just not when he has a good game or it's just not when, you know, he feels like being high energy. He's consistent, and he brings that to the park every day, and he has a lot of fun playing baseball. And do you know why that is, by the way? What? So his dad, Ronald Acuna Sr., played for the Mets back when I played, and he made it to double A. He was actually Jose Reyes' roommate. And Jose Reyes said that when his dad came home, if his dad went 0 for 4, he was, like, ready to jump off the roof. Like, he didn't even talk to him. And Jose Reyes said if he went four for four and he came home, he was like, hey, where are we going? You know, and he was just this big ball of life. And he said it was always dictated on whether or not he was successful. And it's a tough game, baseball, when you fail the best seven out of ten times to be that way. So he told his son, Ronald Acuna Jr., he said, if you want to play baseball, I will help you. But here's the number one rule. You always have fun no matter what. And so... You know, Ronnie has never forgotten that. And when he takes interviews, he makes sure we remember what his dad told him. And he makes sure that's one of the reasons why he has so much fun. Yeah. Another thing I do want to talk about is this young starting rotation the Braves are building. Obviously, Max Freed stepped up huge in 2020 after Mike Soroka went down. Love those two. Some of the other young guys, Ian Anderson, coming up and, and doing a phenomenal job. Uh, I mean, he started off beating the Yankees and the Red Sox very early on, so uh, that's impressive. Uh, Kyle Wright had some big starts, and then uh, Bryce Wilson, a North Carolina guy uh, like myself uh, in the postseason. So let's talk about this young rotation. That's amazing. So what Bryce Wilson did last year was incredible in that postseason. And how great was his mom when he was walking off the field and she was just going nuts in that first row. I love that. That's another reason baseball misses fans. That was one of my favorite parts of all of the playoffs is seeing a fan, his mom, go crazy. So that's very important. He's a great competitor. All these guys are young. Freed's the oldest at 26 years old. That's ridiculous. Mike Soroka has a Greg Maddox career in front of him if he can stay healthy. I've never seen anybody that young who's that mature who can beat you with that many different ways, meaning He's not a Dwight Gooden. I'm going to throw a fastball 100 miles an hour with this hellacious curve. He's like Maddox. He's like the thinker, but yet he can still throw 95 when he wants to. Heavy sinker, change-up slider curve, does just a lot of things so well. And it's just the best, nicest guy afterwards. So I'm really hoping that he does not change. Um, Max Fried, again, another great player. Big curveball. Rotation on his curveball is off the charts. And uh, he loves Sandy Koufax growing up with his dad out in California. So you see that Koufax-type curveball out of him. That's great. So, again, young guys. Kyle Wright really came on last year, scooting over to the left side of the rubber, throwing that power sinker. So um, these are all guys who are going to, you know, just tear it up. Ian Anderson last year, when he came up and did what he did, that was off the charts special, throwing from behind his ear. Dale Murphy said, I'd have trouble picking this guy's fastball up. So when you hear Dale Murphy say that, Andrew Jones and other, you know, this guy wasn't a fluke or a flash in the pan. He is somebody that's going to be a top-tier pitcher for many years to come. The changeup is the hardest pitch in baseball, you know, holding it on the outside part of those fingers are different ways. And I didn't learn one until I was in my 30s. Here, Ian Anderson has one of the best ones I've ever seen, you know, 22 years old. That was – uh really special so these guys are here for a long long time 
Um, picking up Charlie Morton and Drew Smiley was a big deal. You didn't really need to do that. You didn't really have to do that. Like the rotation was going to be good, you know, great regardless. But what it does do is it gives those young guys a look at older players and how they work. And I think Alex Anthopoulos is really big on that, is getting somebody in there so that young players can see how they work. And that changes your future without even knowing it. Yeah. We saw the uh, DH come into play in the National League this past year. We're still kind of waiting to see if that's going to become a full-time thing. Uh, I know Azuna did a great job for the Braves. And uh, had Freddie Freeman not been MVP, I would have said him. Uh, he had just a phenomenal year. Uh, so what do you think about, do you like the designated hitter staying around in the National League? I do. And that's that's a change for me. Um, I wanted to see hitters hit. I'm old school. I love the strategy of the hitter being the pitcher in the nine hole or eight hole. When he comes to walk up, what are you going to do? Are you going to pull him? Are you going to pinch hit? Are you going to sacrifice? Are you going to, but yes, I've come to the conclusion. I would rather watch Marcelo Zuna hit instead of Mike Soroka or Mike Fulton Evich, who's just kind of, you know, waving at the wind. Yeah. I would rather, I would rather see that. So that's been a change for me. I liked it better. And um, so 2020 changed a baseball purist mind. It changed mine too. I was always, uh, I always liked seeing the pitchers hit growing up watching the National League, but it changed my my ideas as well. I want to uh, lastly talk about, uh, you know, over the last year, we've lost a lot of legends of the game of of baseball. And especially here late, uh, some with ties to the Braves. Uh, Two 300 game winners are Phil Necro and Don Sutton. Uh, who Sutton played for the Dodgers, but a long career as an announcer with the Braves. And then Hank Aaron, uh, who uh, my last guest that I had on is a huge Hank Aaron fan. And, uh, he, you know, we were talking Hank Aaron may be the greatest of all time. I mean, he's in the conversation for that, for sure. So yeah. talk about, I know you've gotten to interact with all three of those guys. Talk about each of those three. Yeah, so, man, Phil Necro was always gracious showing me, you know, the knuckleball grip, always very, very kind. And when he was at the stadium, you know, he got a lot of autograph seekers and and everybody was pulling at him, Hall of Famer, big time. Don Sutton, an incredible broadcaster, and he broadcast for me when I played. And so I would always ask Don questions, and he was probably, and he was the best at knowing what I was doing wrong or knowing like one time he told me you're trying to get guys out the exact same way over and over and over again. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. He's like, no, you are. And I went back and I looked at the tapes and I'm like, my gosh, he's right. Like, you know, the things that he saw, just a really good baseball mind. I loved him as a broadcaster, incredible pitcher. Probably the most incredible thing about Don is uh, not just the 324 wins and the strikeouts, but that he never missed a start. Never missed his turn in the rotation, never went on the DL, never had a, an arm that caused him to miss a start. If they added up, you know, all of his starts and divided them by 30, meaning 30 starts a year, he would have over 25 years of never missing a start. Like that's incredible. Never been done before. And he was also incredibly humble. You know, he was around the stadium and he would help anybody. He helped me as a broadcaster. He talked about stuff that he learned from me as a broadcaster. And he said, you know, when you're on and you're, you're looking at Chip or whoever's talking, he says, I feel like I'm a guest watching the show in the living room. And he said, I learned a lot from you on that because I would stare at the camera too much. And I said, so we would exchange ideas and talk about things. And I'm like, here's this Hall of Famer and this unbelievable broadcaster. 
humble enough to tell me that he learned something from me. Who does that? You know, so that was Don Sutton and I love Don and the greatest stories ever. You could just sit there and talk and ask what Hank Aaron was like as a player and what was Roberto Clemente like as a player. And Sutton could tell you all those things. Just phenomenal. Hank Aaron. Oh my gosh. One of the greatest human beings that ever lived, not just baseball players. I was really sad when I started studying up on Hank Aaron because I knew Hank Aaron is this great player and figure and let, but I really never dove into his history. And so I went to the Negro Leagues Museum. I learned a lot of different things about Hank. And because of racism, he wasn't allowed to play organized baseball. He played sandlots. And then he wasn't uh, able to go to high school. So his training consisted of hitting bottle caps with a broomstick. And he was holding the bat incorrectly. If you're a right-handed hitter, your right hand is on top of your left. He was holding it cross-handed where his you know, left hand was on top, and he tried to swing a bat right-handed that way. I don't even know how you get it across the plate. So that's how he swung the bat. And so he's swinging the bat wrong. He's got no experience other than Sandlot and hitting bottle caps with the broom. And the Indianapolis Clowns pick him up. And he goes and plays with the Indianapolis Clown in the Negro Leagues, 17 years old, for three months. And then he gets signed by the Braves. If you read the scouting report, he's 5'11", 170 pounds. And the scouting report says, power, fair, hitting good. And the next thing you know, they switch his hands. He's launching balls. And when you ask him about the home run chase of Babe Ruth, he said he didn't enjoy it. When you said, why, don't, why didn't you enjoy it? You know anything, man, this is the greatest thing ever. It's got to be the most fun anybody's ever had in their lives, chasing Babe Ruth and then catching him, stadiums of people going crazy. What he didn't know is every time that he walked to the park, he didn't know if he was going to get shot and killed. He got so many death threats from people that didn't want him to break Babe Ruth's record. That's really sad. Also, he had to stay at a different hotel through much of his career because he was black and the rest of his team. Also, really sad. Um, so when I looked at Hank's career and I saw this man, I'm thinking, man, this guy should be incredibly angry and bitter. And he wasn't at all. He was so graceful. He had that trademark smile, talked about praying to the Lord and thanking him after his first home run, thanking the Lord for his tough times. I'm just like, my gosh, who is this incredible human being? Loved his wife and was always gracious in interviews and never wanted to talk about himself. When I would interview him and I'm trying to talk about him, he doesn't want to talk about him. He wants to talk about other people and just have a you know, regular conversation. So a lot of times one of my favorite things of talking with Hank was when the microphone was off and I just sat there and talked and I'm like, here's one of, if not the greatest hitter of all time, you know, it's always going to be debated. Right. But he's certainly in that conversation, as you said, and here he is just one of the most humble people that I've ever been around. The great Hank Aaron will never be another like him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, heaven is building a great baseball team up there for sure. They are. You know, they got some great recent additions. I sent a tweet out and I said, you know, uh, and I should have put Lestorda in there, but I was like, I think Hank Aaron just took Necro deep and Don Sutton's warming up. And I should have said, and Tommy Lasorda has Don Sutton warming up. Yeah. You know, so um, I don't know what heaven is like, but I hope it includes baseball. Me too. Well, Paul, uh, I've really enjoyed hearing some great stories from you and, and getting to talk to you here. I really appreciate you coming on and doing the podcast with me. Uh, and uh, just uh, thanks. I've loved it. I appreciate it. Now, when you get down to the stadium, you have to come say hello. 
and uh, show you the the behind the scenes stuff with broadcasting. It's not too glamorous, but it's uh, it is what it is. So it's not locker room glamorous, but it's a lot of fun. Awesome. That sounds great. I'll definitely have to do that. Thanks, Paul. You got it. Great show. See ya. Okay. First of all, thanks to Paul Bird for the great conversation you just heard. Got to talk to him last week, and it was kind of a dream kind of situation, really, how it worked out. Been trying to get him on for a little while, and we're finally able to match our schedules up. Very thankful to him for taking the time to talk to me. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't see how you couldn't. It was really great. He has great stories and great insight into a number of things, not just baseball, but he shared a little bit of his testimony and uh, talked about things of that nature. Again, thank you to Paul Bird for that. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you're here with us, been on the show for about an hour now this week. Yep. 45 minutes of that with Paul Bird. Now I am joined, as you just heard her voice probably, my wife, Christine. Hello. And uh, she had the idea for this Happily Ever Drafter that we're going to do a fantasy draft where we draft the ultimate meal. The way I devised this thing, back when I was in youth group as a youngin', there were tales of the cool youth groups going and doing a progressive meal where they would go around town on, you know, their Wednesday night adventures and go into a different restaurant for every part of a meal. So they went for an appetizer, then a main course, and they went for dessert, like a progressive meal across town and try different places and different things. So I thought, you know what? Since we can't really go out and do that, I mean, we could. Luckily, things are mostly open around the Carolinas. Why don't we just draft our ultimate meal? So some things for me, y'all know how these drafts go. They end up completely different than how we want, but interest in how we get there. Mine's probably not going to make any sense, but... That's just the name of the game. Yeah, so we can pretty much pick from anything we've ever eaten at a restaurant, but if I pick from a certain restaurant, then Christine can't pick from that right. restaurant and vice versa. Right, so the restaurants are like disappearing. So if he picks an appetizer from place A, I cannot pick anything else from that entire place. He, he Neither one of us can pick from restaurant A for any other category. It's going to be tough. <laughs> Yeah, and we've got five categories, appetizers, sides, main dishes, desserts, and then a freebies that we threw in, which could be bread, soup, salad, and yeah. like that. Sometimes, I mean, y'all know what I'm talking about. He just said soup and salad and bread. At almost every restaurant, at least in the South, have some kind of freebie or like appetizer, you know, courtesy thing on the table. So that that's one that, you know, some places are well, well known for their freebies and what they kind of give you. And so if you've listened to the show before, you know how the drafts work. If not, basically I always let my guests go first, or Christine if she joins me, and then I pick second, and then we switch the order for the second round. So it's basically each of us is picking twice in a row in that case. Now for today, since we've got five different categories, I've got the five different categories written on pieces of paper that we're each going to draw out at the beginning of rounds. Mm-hmm. So like I said, Christine's first. She'll be drawing out first. And after we've each made a pick for that category, I'll be drawing out and then I'll go first. And then, and then so on. We've got five categories. Let's build our ultimate meals. Christine, you are up first. All right. There we go. We're jiggling the cups. We're being real. We're being honest here. Yeah, and you may have heard some other sounds during the Paul Bird interview. He was he had a bag of sand he told a story about. I'm sure you probably heard that in the background because he was holding it on the camera showing to me in the video while we were recording. <laughs> so 
Uh, this is yeah. gonna be a noisy episode, everybody. So we apologize. Thank you if you're if you're hanging with us so far. And just as you would expect, the beginning of a meal, you would want to start with oh, wow. an appetizer. Okay. Whew. Okay, right. So here we go. It's gonna be tough. I got a lot of well, I got a lot more freebies written down because everybody has bread and junk. Oh, I think I'm gonna go for my choice appetizer. I'm gonna go with Carabas calamari. Okay. If y'all ain't never had Carabas calamari, my parents thought they were sly when we were kids. Well, they were sly. Don't lie. Mom and Brant, y'all were great. They took us to Carabas one time as kids and were like, y'all try this. You eat it and tell me if it's good and then I'll tell you what it is. And we all were, you know, none the wiser and was like, this is delicious. What is this weird chicken nugget? Well, it wasn't chicken nugget. It's squid. So their calamari is delicious. Yeah, I tried it for the first time. Uh, when we went to prom together, your senior year of high school, mm-hmm. and I jokingly said that this is squid, and then you was like, "Yeah, it is." Or, yeah. Or, oh, yeah. Something like that. We ate. Okay, I was obviously much thinner back in high school. Josh was a little slimmer too, but we ate so much. I remember I had little flowers all over my dress. I had a couple flowers that popped off, and I was just like, "Just go, just go, just run, just run," so like nobody would see that, like. Chunk over there eating her way out of her dress. <laughs> so yeah, I picked Carabas. What do you got for appetizer, Bo? I'm trying to decide. I had four appetizers written down. You took one, uh, the first one that I actually <laughs> wrote down. So I'm trying to decide. One of these I just kind of threw in later, not knowing, just wanting to have several options. So it's between two. And I am going to go... Dang. It ain't got to make sense, y'all. Me and Josh were talking about this when we made this idea up. When I made this idea up, I was like, just pick your favorite items of each category. And Josh was like, no, this has to make sense. Leave us a comment. Does does your ultimate meal have to make sense? Or do you want like a cornucopia of deliciousness? Does it have to be themed? Does it have to all match? Like, do you have to have pizza with the salad? Do you have to have barbecue with, you know, the cheese grits? Like, I don't know. I'm well, just I, I'm just picking random. That, I, that's a weird combo. But. I have a certain gotta, way that I go about these things, and we just came from out back. We had a blooming <laughs> onion. Yeah, that's one of my choices. It's so good. I but but I think I'm gonna go just working off some strategy here with fried pickles from Buffalo Wild oh, Wings. Oh, that's cool. Those are good, but that ain't on my list. You good? Oh my god. Those we are get those so good. Every time we, go there. we do. Every single time we go there. I mean, it's like clockwork. It's like Josh goes to the bathroom, I sit down, I'm like, I want sweet tea. He wants sometimes Pepsi if he's in a good mood, sometimes water. Then I'm like, and a basket of fried pickles. It was between those two and I like pickles better than onions. So I mean uh, Unless they're on a McRib and they can be both uh, they are both welcome. Yeah, both are welcome. All are welcome in God's kingdom. Okay. Well, I'm <laughs> so going Outback. to draw our second category. Uh, category. Hopefully We're going I'll out of order. Good. This is going to be a weird dinner. A weird meal. Next up, main course. All right. All right. That makes sense. Okay. Well. <laughs> I only got two written down. Let me go back real quick. What were some of your other What were some of your other appetizers you had? I had Bloomin' Onion and I had Firecracker Chicken Wraps from Longhorn. Just because I just threw that in there. Yeah, yeah. This was hard trying to do research because every every website that you want to look up for like top rated appetizers from restaurants, like we we're, we're trying to pick kind of like chain restaurants or places that seem pretty well known. 
all except for maybe one or two on my list. But like, it's tough because everybody just is posting recipes and stuff on like their copycat recipes, not here's a list of the best of this, this, this. So my main course, I was thinking of going one way. Now I'm questioning what I should do. But I think I'm going to have to go this way. I, I'm i going to go with the New York strip from Longhorn. Now, Christine, I'm not going with Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Why? I've been there one time. And yes, best steak I've ever had. Yeah. But I try, I threw that out. Why? Because you were going to give it to me? That's just not. Oh, no, happy I'm, not try, I'm not trying to give it. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm not trying to give it to you. I'll take it now. <laughs> like, I mean. I threw that out because yeah. that is just like so far out the price range, I feel like. Well, that, when like, we I'm, went to Ruth's Chris for that one time, we probably won't ever go again unless I win some other gift card. But I had won like a competition at my car dealership I worked at at the time. Um, congrats, you now know something personal about me. I worked at a car dealership. I won a gift card for doing like the best car presentation, like explaining all the features of a car and kind of like presenting the car. And I won, like, a $200 gift card. And so we got to go to Ruth's Chris on, like, a special occasion and, like, kind of celebratory. We had just adopted our puppy, Cooper. And this was, like, the nicest meal we'd ever had. So, I mean, you got me in a bind because now I got two really good main course options. And I don't want to just go with steak. Well, I threw Ruth's Chris out because just, for me, it's not a place we're going to go regularly. And I know I've been there once, technically. Not Honestly. Many, yeah, not many people I think have been there because yeah. it's just, it, it just has this, this notorious, like, expense. Like, like, Longhorn's been my go-to for steak for years yeah. for chain restaurants. Yeah. And it was there. Yep. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and say it because you're probably not going to pick this. Anyway, I almost went with a tour of Italy from Olive Garden. That's cool. That's uh, a lot of food. If I was going to pick something uh, good. from there, it would be that. Three different things. And I love their lasagna, especially. But uh, lasagna. Uh, other great things on the tour of Italy. Yeah. Well, you left steak wide open with Ruth's Chris. If y'all ain't never been to Ruth's Chris, save up some money. Get real freaking dressed up. Pretend like you just bought a small island and go and treat yourself. If not, you know, save up. Pretend you bought yourself a new outfit and then go to Longhorn. I think I'm going to kind of swing wide here and go with the Chicago deep dish pizza from Giordano's. The meat lovers like Chicago deep dish pizza. (laughs) I didn't didn't even think of that. Boy, that was like a spiritual pizza eating experience. This year was our um, sixth wedding anniversary. This year will be. This year year is our sixth. Last year was our fifth. Excuse me. We've been together for five years longer than whatever we're trying to say, but only five of them count towards marriage. But we were going to go to actual Chicago for our fifth anniversary. I had just done the show Chicago with my college. Um, I, I was a returning returning performer to the stage, um, a graduated student. I was um, got cast as Matron Mama Morton. Loved that freaking show. But we were going to go to Chicago because I was like, why the heck not? Like, everybody around here goes to the beach and goes to the mountains. Like, they go to the same two or three places. Sometimes I'll go to Florida, go to Disney. But I was like, let's go to Chicago. Let's see what's going on up there. And, like, three days before we were packing up to go get on a plane, the mayor of Chicago was like, no. And so I cried a lot. But I was like, you know what? I can still have my Chicago deep dish pizza. 
Now, Giordano's is like a really great restaurant. If y'all ever get to go, there's a bunch of them up north, you know, around Chicago, obviously. There's really none between like Illinois and Florida. Like there's three or four in Florida and that's where we had it the first time. You'll wait a long time, but I'm telling y'all, it's like, it's like a casserole of pizza and it's so good. what do you think about it? Oh gosh. Amazing. It's a, so um, good. Never even crossed my mind to pick that. I didn't even think about it. I'm just thinking like pizza is such a flipping blessing. Like, cause you can put anything on a pizza and I mean, you might get a little hate for it, but like you, you can just put anything in a pizza. It's like putting anything in a sandwich. Like the, you can make it work somehow, but that's what I got for my main course is going to be a slice or two. If I can stand it, of Chicago meat lovers, deep dish pizza from Giordano's. <laughs> All right, Christine. I have a shook All up right. the cup. Three yep. choices left. Trace. I forgot how to say choices in Spanish. Sorry, all my Spanish friends. Oh. Yes. We're going with dessert. Something hit me when I was 25, and it was just a simple matter. Of, and it was the sudden urge. No, the sudden need to be able to go to the Cheesecake Factory. Because I realized I'm a grown-A woman with a grown-A woman's bank account who can go to Cheesecake Factory anytime she wants. So, I'm going to go with my favorite cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, and that's like the ultimate red velvet cake cheesecake. I like a whole bunch of other ones because I have a sweet tooth, but that's what I'm going to go with. Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> well, uh... You're like, that's fine. I wrote down two desserts on my list, and since you took the Cheesecake Factory... Oh, you had that down? Well, I had the Reese's Peanut Butter... Ooh. chocolate cake cheesecake um but my other one's gonna sound lame uh next to that i feel like and that's the marbled cookie brownie from domino's <laughs> now now all right, I, all right, we all were right. talking about this over dinner like how much i love chocolate yeah like a chocolate dessert like a brownie or a cookie just literally anything anything like with that. chocolate he's a grandpa it's y'all. a cookie he, and a brownie together he would eat daggum like chocolate pudding through a straw if you could. It just has to be chocolate. Those things are really good. And now I'm thinking maybe I should have gone with the Hershey whatever deal. Is that Ooh, from Pizza, Pizza Hut? Pizza Hut, the Hershey brownie. You can't. I, just thought I, will, of that, allow, I will allow it. I'm happy with either one. It's more chocolate and it's got higher calories. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> and yeah. I'll, I'll go with the Pizza Hut offering. The like triple chocolate Hershey brownie. Yeah, now that I think of it, I couldn't... Boy, you ain't even got to cut that I don't think I piece. could think of the name of it before. You don't even cut it. Just hand me the whole square. <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> I had my second place dessert. I'm a... Y'all, I'm a big dessert person. I love sweets, and I cannot, for the life of me, put them down. It's like, it's like I'm addicted. I mean, I don't eat sugar constantly all day, every day, but, like, I'm down. Like, I, I'm down for sweets all the time. My second choice was a place that you would never, ever think of. It's um, in Asheville. There's a very well-known dessert restaurant. It's called French Broad Chocolates. And I get two things there when I go because I go very rarely. And like I said, I'm obsessed with sweets. So y'all judge me if you want. I always get like a chocolate torte. It's almost like fudgy brownie, but it's flourless and it's real dark and it got like a raspberry like preserve over top. And I always get a lavender creme brulee, which isn't even chocolate, but creme brulees. Oh my God. So good. But that, that was my second place was basically my, my, my combo I get 
at French Broad Chocolates. And it ain't really a combo. They're just two desserts that I get at the same time. So <laughs> I'm down I'm down for some Domino's and some Pizza Hut. That's that's a good financial decision. Yeah. So I just drew sides. Side for And I had one side written down. <laughs> it's uh, hard. And that was a baked potato from Longhorn. I've already taken yeah. a New York strip from Longhorn. So just give me a baked potato from Outback. <laughs> I was just there. I had one. It was pretty solid. I mean, when I have a steak, I want a baked potato. You mean to tell me we about to make it through this whole entire draft, and you ain't gonna say nothing about no Cracker Barrel? Cracker Barrel. You don't like no. You don't like Cracker Barrel. I like Cracker Barrel, but you know how many sides they got, y'all. I still do shifts at the Cracker Barrel every now and again, and boy, we got like the breaded okra. We got like twelve. Stuff? Yeah, we got phenomenal. Yes. What about like what about some of these barbecue joints around here, honey? I've got steak and a potato. (laughs) It ain't gotta make sense. That's who I am. It ain't gotta make sense. (laughs) That is me. (laughs) Steak, potato. I'm starting out with fried pickles, ended up with that Pizza Hut Hershey's brownie. That's that's just like us though to be going out to eat somewhere and getting like the weirdest appetizer and then just like steak and potatoes and then we're like. And then I'm driving home with Josh, and he's like, I'm like, I want dessert. And we end up going to a drive through and getting something stupid and sweet. That's just like us. Yeah, ain't, mine ain't going to make sense. Um, I have two side dishes. We didn't touch any of them. You didn't touch any of them. I'm going to go with the one that I like the most, but it, it really don't make sense with my meal. At this point, y'all, I'm just, I'm out of luck. Y'all going to think I'm crazy. When he shows the, the list of these items on this draft, y'all going to be like, none of these go together. Stay in your lane. I'm going to go with the corn. I guess it's like a corn souffle or like a corn pudding from Tupelo Honey Cafe again in Asheville. We had that years ago. Like we went a couple times, but I have this thing for corn. All right. If corn, if you could have a spirit vegetable, mine would be (laughs) corn. (laughs) Like if you could have a spirit fruit, mine would be watermelon. Like those two things. Mine's a baked potato. I'm I'm telling you. I love baked potatoes. I lo- I just you don't make me no baked potatoes. <laughs> like <laughs> I'd rather have mashed taters. Okay, okay. So anyway, now that we you all have discovered our spirit vegetables, I really love corn. I have these two corn. Oh my god, I about said corny. I have these two silly looking corn dishes that I use exclusively for eating corn on the cob because you can put butter on it and you can just like roll it in a little dish. They look like they're straight out of the 60s or something, but they're like brand new from like the Le Creuset store. So I'm going to go with that corn souffle. I just love me some daggone corn, y'all. I know it's just, it's, it's got some sugar and starch in it, but I love me some corn. Holla if you like the corn too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate corn, uh, but uh, yeah. Corn is Not such like a you. blessing. It's such like a new world food. I mean, like, come on. You wouldn't have tortilla chips. You love you some daggum tortilla chips and salsa. You love, and then you wouldn't have cornbread. Come Guilty. on. <laughs> you wouldn't have almost any of the potato chips. Like, half of the potato chips that we eat have corn. I think Funyuns are made of corn, like Cheetos. I mean, obviously, every popcorn, like, popcorn is corn. But so many things. Like, if we didn't have corn... Mad respect for corn, bro. Mad respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we know that all that's left is freebies and that you get to pick first. Freebies. Like we said, bread, soup, salad. Oh, boy. Uh, miscellaneous. I already did Carabas. I know I would go with, if I could do it again, 
which we could, but we're not. I would go with like the Carabas, like the herb oil with the fresh hot like bread that you dip in the oil at Carabas. Oh my God, that's a blessing too. Mm-hmm. I just, we'd like to eat y'all. I'm telling you, I got a problem. Let's see. There's so many different bread things. And you've already picked something from Olive Garden. Now, I, I consider the Ooh. tour of Italy. I consider the tour of Italy, but with the New York Strip from Longhorn. You know, I think I'm going to go with the salad and breadsticks ah. to Olive Garden. If I if I were to, just because that salad is so cold and refreshing, and the breadsticks are like that salt they put on them, that like garlic salt, it like burns your tongue, but you're like ah, like I love it. And if I were not going to be going with that, my second choice would be Cheddar Bay Biscuits from Red Lobster. Because, I mean, Cheddar Biscuits. Well, so that is my pick. <laughs> uh, I was going to take whichever one you didn't. Olive Garden Salad and Breadsticks or the Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuits. So it looks like I'm left with the Cheddar Bay Biscuits. Yeah. That's not a bad thing to be left with. No, it ain't. Um, also considered. I got a box of them in the Also considered Wendy's Chili here. Wendy's got some good chili. That ain't a freebie. But you said freebies anything. You said soup. <laughs> I saw chili soup. No, I mean, like, they give it to you on the table. Like okay, they... I didn't take it. <laughs> I didn't, I'd go through the drive-thru and get one, but... He's no. trying to cheat. No, but I'm taking the Cheddar Bay Biscuits. <laughs> I had that second in my lineup behind the Olive Garden salad and breadsticks. Yep. I mean, really, there's just so, every place you can go and get bread. Like, lo- your Longhorn, your Outback. Like, you get, they give you basically a little roll, and you got to... You know, you tear it to death trying to cut pieces up. <laughs> I felt good going to this last round because I knew I was going to get one of those two. Yeah. No matter what you got. So I felt good. You just had this meal, like, planned out. like I have a solid meal. Y'all think he does. And his meal's going to look like it makes a lot more sense. But just remember, ladies and gentlemen, that my meal came straight from my heart, which is closest, <laughs> which is very close to my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> so right. let's, let's, uh, let's review, babe. Let's start dessert first. Last short. Let's have dessert first. I had the Hershey's brownie thing from Pizza Hut. I had a red velvet cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. What did you have as your side dish? I had a baked potato from Outback. An Outback baked tater. I had Pillow Honey Cafe's corn souffle or like corn pudding. It's something like that. What about your main course? The New York Strip from Longhorn. I had Giordano Chicago Deep Dish Pizza. Let's go then to your appetizer. I had fried pickles from Buffalo Wild Wings. I had calamari from Carabas. And to round things off, our freebie that comes to the table first. Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuit. And I'm going Olive Garden Salad and Breadsticks. So now that I kind of am looking back, the only thing really on my list that kind of don't make no sense is the corn souffle and like maybe cheesecake. Yeah. Because everything else is kind of Italian. I mean, yeah, salad so and pizza go together makes, well. And calamari is like, instead of fried. So I was kind of thinking, man, if I could plan an ultimate Italian meal, but I didn't, I didn't come in this that way. But yeah, I mean, that's what my ultimate meal would look like. Me with my weird corn fetish or whatever. Yeah, the corn and the pizza together, I don't know, but... <laughs> There's some crazy, like, hippie pizza restaurant that puts corn on their pies. Like, y'all know that's y'all know that's a thing. But, yeah, yours makes pretty good sense, too. I mean, if you, if you were to give Josh, like, a last meal, you know, there's this thing of, like, what's your last meal? If you were on death row, like, what would be your last meal? Like, Josh pretty much just gave it to y'all. Like, 
He would want some kind of fried appetizer. He loves pickles. Like, steak and a baked potato is just like his steadfast. I mean, that's just like a weird man thing, I guess, about men being obsessed with steak and taters. And, I mean, your side dish, you know, potato, the freebie, like, biscuits, dessert, chocolate. I mean, if you could categorize a person by a meal, y'all, that is... Josh has had that same favorite meal, like, the 10 and a half, 11 years I have known him. I mean, I swear to you, it's been his favorite meal. <laughs> yeah, and I have to give a shout out to Mountain Burrito. Yeah. Because uh, I consider it a steak burrito, but I don't really need any sides with one of their burritos. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're local around here, you know how big those things are. Or if you're not, you better get to Morganton and have one. The it's, only place you're going to find it. It's better than Chipotle. Yeah. Cometh at me, brethren. Oh. We will fight. It's a good thing they don't sponsor us. I know. I wish they would. Mount Burrito, if you hear this, please. We love you. Thanks. We have your t-shirts. Okay. <laughs> it's been a fun show. I promised that I thought it would be our biggest show yet. We had our biggest guest yet with Paul Bird. Thanks again to him. Yeah. Great conversation. Uh, really enjoyed it. We had the first segment for Black History Month. I talked a little bit about Jackie Robinson. Now, if you have an idea for somebody I should talk about next week, an African-American in the world of sports who has done great things, let me know on social media. Uh, As always, you can like Four Quarters with Josh McKinney on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at SuperJMac32 and give us those ideas or just give us a like and a follow. Uh, And that's where we tweet stuff out or post stuff on Facebook about the show. Thanks to Christine for joining me for the final segment here today. Yeah. And also, my Super Bowl prediction I made earlier, I picked the Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the Kansas City Chiefs, although I could see it going either way. We'll see how it happens. Can't wait to watch it. And like I said, eat some great food, spend time with friends and family, and just enjoy the game. I don't think my heart rate's going to be too high because my team's not in it and nowhere near it. Uh, But it's been a great last Hour Plus with you here this week on Four Quarters with Josh McKinney. And like I said, you can find us on social media. Thanks again, Christine, for joining me. You'll be back next week. We're going to have some Valentine's-related stuff with that coming up on February 14th. Our next show's on February 10th. So right before Valentine's Day, we'll have some fun stuff in mind for that. Maybe even a new segment or two. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for joining us today on Four Quarters with with Josh Josh McKinney. McKinney.